Man, that ended you pumped up. I don't know. I don't know what's going on with you. So um, I love that song. Um, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power, and love, and self-control. What a great song to remind us that, you know, anything that we may be worried about, uncertain about, that uh, we don't have to be because God is in control. So we can remain in his presence and his love um, and just allow him to take those fears and those burdens and uh, know that nothing is bigger than our God. And uh, so that is awesome. And um, so um, I usually, if you're visiting with us, my name is Pastor Mike. Welcome to Harvest Hill Baptist Church. Um, and usually when I do a sermon, typically I start out with a story. Um, it's typically a story about me and my family, most time my family. Now, Jamie tells me that every time I tell a story about her or the kids, I always make them look bad. Um, I think that's impossible. I mean, have you seen them? They're so cute, right? I mean, how could a story I tell make them look bad, right? Amen? So with that, I want to, like, tell a story about, uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so football season's in the air. Um, I love this time of year. Uh, Abby, not so much. She told me yesterday, um, as I told her to go to her room after she told me that she hates football. And so I said, go to your room. Um, and uh, Jamie doesn't really care for it because I'm, I'm typically, if there's a game on, I at least want to turn it on for a little bit. I don't even have to like the team. But as I think about football uh, season, I, I thought about like last year, uh, Charlie Buchanan and I got the pleasure of coaching sixth grade football. And since I love football, I just found it a huge blessing to be able to pour into what I know and what we know into a younger generation so they could learn the game of football, learn how to play it, um, and be safe in playing it, and just have fun. Because it's a game. I mean, it's a game. It's just a game. <laughs> and we got to keep that in perspective. Um, all sports, they're just games. But um, we, had a good, we had a good time. Um, I did not have a winning record as a head coach. Uh, matter of fact, we didn't win a game. Um, we didn't. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't call it terrible, but <laughs> we scored twice, which for our kids in two separate games, for our kids, that was like a winning feeling um, because, you know, not every team, I won't mention who, but that, that person's here. He was part of a team that didn't score at all. Um, there you go. He's going to volunteer. I, I wasn't even going to try to look at him, but, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, um, so it, it was a good season. It was a rough season. It was a learning season. And, and um, as, uh, as we went through the season, we came up against a team from a town which shall not be named, uh, about 12 miles north up 125. They purple. And they have eagles for a mascot. If you haven't figured out what town it is, um, anyway, we're we're playing them, and so our team is getting ready. They're warming up, and as our team normally warms up, whether it's stretching, you know, running a couple plays, throwing the ball around, a lot of times it's, it's sixth grade boys. We had one girl, so it was a lot of goofing off. I'll just be honest, but they were warming up. Um, decided I'm going to look across, which I normally did every before every game, to see what we were going to be up against. And um, as I stared across the football field, because um, we were over on the opposite side, my heart just kind of dropped. Um, I saw their quarterback, who looked like he should have been a freshman in high school, um, throw a 40-yard perfect spiral tight to a receiver in full stride. And I thought, oh, boy, this is going to be... I don't know. So, you know, we tried to pep up the kids. Um, 
And then I, I started counting. And I, I remember I went to Charlie and said, I think they have 40 kids on their team. We had 12. You have to have 11 to put a team on the field. We had, we had one sub. And so I immediately started thinking, this is, this is going to be bad. I could feel the storm approaching. And my feelings were not off. I tried not to be, I wasn't afraid. I just knew that this probably isn't going to be pretty. Um, half times, 40 to nothing. Them. Them. <laughs> and, and our kids come to the sideline. You know, they got that walk of the feet. Their heads are down. They're dropping their helmets like they weigh a ton. And, and so in that moment, you have to be the coach, right? You have to, you know, we got another half to play, guys. We're going to regroup. We're going to, you know, pull together. We're going to slow them down. I did not give them the promise we are going to stop them. We're going to slow them down. And, you know, we're going to start getting things together. And, and, and we're going to do our very best to get on the board. We're just going to play hard to the end. And, hey, it's a game. Let's have fun while we do this. In the back of my mind, as a coach, I'm thinking, okay, the coach from the town that shall not be named surely will pull his starters and start playing the kids that don't normally get to play. And they'll go in, and so our kids will have, you know, a little bit more luck. That's not what happened. He played his starters till the final three minutes of the fourth quarter and just drove us into the ground, and I was so mad. What a, I mean, in my head, I mean, that guy's a jerk. And I was so glad that last year we had the COVID restrictions. If you ever went to a football game last year, you noticed that on one hash, one team would stand, and the other hash, another team would stand, and you'd wave. Like, even though you were hitting each other for the whole game, you had to have that distance, some reason, to wave. And so I, I, I stood there, and I was like, and I walked off. And in my head, I was thinking somebody needs to give that guy what he deserves. What a jerk. I mean, these are kids. This is a game. What's the point of doing that to kids? And I was so frustrated with him. And I, I was thinking, he's, he's going to get what's coming to him. You know what? If I ever see a car on the side of the road with a purple eagle sticker on the back, I'm going to drive right by. I'm not even going to slow down. And hypothetically, in my mind, I had this thing playing out. If I were to be walking out to the parking lot, and it was just me, and it was just that coach, and his car wouldn't start, it needed to jump, I was going to get in my car, honk my horn, half-time wave at him, and drive off. Well, you're a preacher. What's wrong with you? I was mad. I was so mad at this guy. But then hypothetically what I'm thinking is if, if I do that, Richard Campbell's going to drive by in his fancy pantsy yellow truck. He's going to see me and he's going to say, not in my town, pastor. And then he's going to go and help the guy out. And then I'm going to look like a jerk even more so. So I share this story not to make me look good, obviously. But because I think we've all been in a situation where we want someone to be put in their place feel like we've been wronged, feel like something needs to do, someone needs to do something to make this right. Someone needs to get what's coming to them. Problem with this mindset is our beatitude today is telling us to do the exact opposite. And this is going to be hard. 
Our beatitude this morning is switching focus. Our first four beatitudes, which begin in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, and run through verse 6, begin by focusing on who our understanding of God is and our relationship to him, how we can have this relationship to him, and, and what sort of mindset we should have and our, where our heart should be in that relationship and how that should produce things out of our life. You know, we depend on God. We're poor in spirit. We are to mourn over our sin because of God's holiness and our lack of. We understand that he is in control so we can be meek and we continually long for his presence. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so those inward characteristics today now change into an outward manifestation, which is to be revealed to our fellow man, to other individuals. So here's our Beatitudes, Matthew chapter five, verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And the hard part about this beatitude, it does not say that we are merciful because we have been shown mercy by someone else. It is calling us to show mercy to others because we know we have received mercy from the one true God, and in return, he continues to show us mercy, and so we show other people mercy. Like we've done in the past couple of weeks, we're going to focus on the main word of this beatitude just to understand what it means, and that main word is the word mercy. Now, the first thought when I think of mercy, John, I'm a little bit older than you, but um, some of you guys may remember, maybe girls too, I don't know how aggressive you were in high school, but y'all remember that game Mercy? You'd lock hands with some other individual and then you would, it's just a battle of strength. You'd try to get them and, and get their wrists to go up. And so pain would shoot up their arm. And if you've never heard this game, do not play it. Okay, parents, I'm sorry. But um, so you would do that. And then the other individual, whoever's losing, would say the word mercy. And so it's not that you were going to give them mercy. You were just going to stop inflicting pain because you had won. Well, this is not mercy. Mercy isn't something we give because someone asks for it. It's something that we are continually giving. The biblical definition of the word mercy is a feeling and action. So in the English language, we actually have to come up with two words in order to understand the biblical word of mercy, and those are sympathy and empathy. Now, sympathy is feeling, feeling pity and sorrow for another individual. And so when we're feeling sympathy, and I think we're all good at this aspect of biblical mercy, when we feel sympathy, we, we typically show it at funerals or people's losses, and we say, I'm so sorry for your loss. My heart breaks for you in this moment. And so we show them sympathy. We are feeling pity for them. Our younger generation probably say something like, man, that stinks, or that's, uh, I'm sorry, dude, whatever. I don't know how you all talk these days, but okay. So, but we are capable of showing sympathy. I believe that's the easiest part when it comes to biblical mercy. But sympathy is only half of the word mercy to which the Bible gives us. The word sympathy in the Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in, actually captures the full meaning of mercy from the Bible. It's derived from two Greek words. The first one is syn, S-Y-N, not S-I-N. And that word means together with. The second word, which makes up our word sympathy, is passion, which means to experience or to suffer. So when we talk about biblical sympathy, 
We're saying that we're experiencing things together with another person to literally go through what they are going through. But in the English, def, English language, we have two words. Because when we say sympathy, we simply say, okay, I feel for you. I'm sorry for you. Uh, my heart breaks for you in this moment. So we develop the word empathy. Now, empathy is taking the feeling of sympathy, but then we're going to move it to a place where we share the other person's circumstances. So in other words, we don't just feel for them. We come alongside with them and we walk through whatever they're going through in that moment to the point that we feel their own brokenness. We take their brokenness, their pain, and their sorrow, and it invades our heart that we feel exactly what they're feeling in that moment. So sympathy and empathy is the biblical word for mercy when we read, blessed are the merciful. So this is what we're called to deliver because we will receive or be shown mercy. I think sometimes when we think about that, sympathy and empathy, we can think, okay, if that's biblical mercy, that's, that's pretty near impossible. I can feel for someone, but I don't know if I actually take on that complete burden that they're going through. I don't know if I have the full emotional or attachment to that situation, but we do it all the time. We just maybe do it in different arenas. For example, I think we do it a lot within sporting events. March Madness kind of highlights this, and that's the only time I really watch basketball is at March Madness, but we do this with the underdog. And so in March Madness, we pick the underdog. We pick that team, that 16th seed, that team that's not supposed to go very far. And when they go and face up one of the Goliaths, and we'll just say Kansas, I don't know what they're going to look like this year, but we'll just pretend hypothetically Kansas. Um, So they go up against that Goliath team, that Goliath University that has all the top star recruits, the number ones in the nation. And you got this little bitty school of like a thousand students going up against them. We root for the underdog. And so throughout the game, when they start doing well, what do we do? We get excited. We're invested into the game. We, don't, we have no ties to these people or to this school, but we are feeling for them to the point that we are emotionally responding to what is happening. We're becoming attached. And so when they win, we're ecstatic. Even though we had nothing to do with it, we're, we're joining in the response. We're showing empathy to this team that took down this Goliath. And when they lose, we say, well, you know, they put up a good fight sympathy, but they really didn't have much of a chance. But still, we do it every single year, whether it's March Madness or other sports, we have this attachment to something that could happen but may not happen that we just so attach, we actually have an emotional response that comes out of us. We're not just like, oh, that's good, or I feel for you, or things like that. We're actually invested. We take that motto of dumb and dumber in our mind, you know, you're telling me there's a chance. That's what we do. And so when we can live this out, this mercy thing, but the thing is, is now is we need to apply it to people. See, mercy allows us to not only see the circumstance and not only have an emotional response to it, but mercy, biblical mercy, allows us to take action to help relieve the circumstance. So to be merciful allows us to meet people where they are. To be merciful is a direct reflection of the character and nature of God, which is what we as God's people are called to do. We are called to be merciful, ministers of reconciliation. 
See, we understand as God's people, and maybe you need to understand this today. God saw us, and he sees you in your sin. And God knows what happens if we would remain in our sin, that we'd be eternally separated from him forever in a place the Bible defines as hell. We would not have eternal life in heaven if we still remain in our sin. And God knows that we can't relieve any of our sin issue. We can't get rid of it ourselves. We can't do enough good stuff. So God stepped in in his mercy in Jesus Christ to meet us where we are in human form, and Jesus Christ took on our sin on the cross, our payment for it, he bore it to relieve us. And so we understand mercy. God didn't just look at us like, oh, I feel so bad for you. God stepped in to take our place and show us mercy. But being merciful doesn't get to pick and choose who we're merciful to. Notice it says, blessed are the merciful. There is no direct object on who we're merciful to, meaning that to be merciful, it needs to be an ongoing characteristic of God's people. This means we are to have and show mercy to individuals who have shown mercy to us, but here's the tough spot. We are also to have and show mercy to individuals who have never shown mercy to us. You are to be merciful And so I think that makes us cringe that we want to lash out and say, well, they need to get what they deserve or they're a jerk or whatever. And we want someone to put them in their place. But the Bible is saying we need to live beyond that mentality. Instead, we need to be merciful to those who don't deserve our mercy. Why? Why would you want to do that? Well, first off, Jesus said to. Let's just start there, right? And so when Jesus says to do something, we need to do our very best to do what Jesus said. But also to be merciful and to live out a merciful life keeps us from becoming judgmental, hard-hearted, and prideful. Think of the story in the book of Exodus. So God hears the cry of the Israelites. The Israelites are the covenantal people of God, a covenant established with Abraham in the book of Genesis. God hears their crying out. They're groaning because of all the persecution and the the slavery that is upon them. So what does God do? He moves. He decides to send Moses into Egypt to speak to Pharaoh and, in in sense, ask Pharaoh for mercy. It is to ask Pharaoh to look at the Israelites and see their condition and then respond, even though his response would not benefit him in any way. But what does the Bible say about Pharaoh? Well, the first thing it says about Pharaoh over and over again is that Pharaoh was hard-hearted, that he did not look upon their condition as something that needed to be remedied. It says when Moses comes and asks Pharaoh for help, he, he hears this cry that, oh, well, you know, the Israelites are only able to make this cry for help because they have too much time on their hand. You know, we're too easy on them. So put more work upon them. Make them be pushed down further. Beat them down to the ground. He becomes judgmental. When Moses says that God sent me here to have you release his people so they can go into the wilderness and worship him. You know what Pharaoh says? I don't know your God. Which is truth because in Pharaoh's life, he was God, lower G. He was prideful in himself. He couldn't feel mercy at all. And how this relates to our life is, you know, we live just down the road from another town where it's very difficult not to see people on the corner 
It's very difficult to not drive by people and look at them and say, you know what? They're in that position for a reason. They've done something or are continuing to do something that keeps them in this situation. And there may be truth to that, but how many times do we actually get out and ask them that? And for some of us, we probably say, you know, if I were to give them money, even though they have a really cool sign, I bet they would go spend it on drugs and alcohol and just continue to remain in this situation. And there may be truth to that. But this is not what mercifulness allows us to do. See, to be merciful sees the pain, and then it comes alongside the individual to walk with them through that pain. I'm not saying when we go to Springfield or any other city, whenever we see someone on the corner and you start throwing out $20 bills, that's not what I'm saying at all. But instead of jumping to a judgmental uh, judgmental spot, instead of allowing our hearts to be hard to the person in a painful and desperate situation, instead of being prideful about how we're doing life so much better than them, maybe we get out of the car and have a conversation. Maybe at the very least, when we're stopped at the stoplight and we're trying to make sure our window's up, we pray for that person. Or we simply ask, hey, I don't have any money to give you, but what can I pray for you about? And if we see him again, we let him be known. See, to be merciful is to take care of the needy. When it comes to being merciful, we can see how merciful our hearts are by how we respond when we come across people in need. And not just talking about money and not just talking about food. When we see people in need because they're in pain. When we see people that are struggling with disabilities or sorrow or grief. When we see people that are going through broken homes and broken marriages and they're in a deep state of brokenness. See, it's easier for us, because I know it is for me, I'll just confess, it's easier for me to say, this is happening because of a reason. And then we try to figure out, like, if I was in that situation, what would I do? Because obviously, I wouldn't make those mistakes that they're making. But see, being merciful, and by showing mercy, we're not necessarily trying to fix the situation as much as we're trying to come alongside the situation and take it on as our own. And being merciful doesn't always lead to resolution. It can, but that's not the point. The point is to let people know that as they break, we break. And as their hearts are broken and they have pain, we feel their pain. We feel their sorrow. So I think showing mercy is one of the greatest strengths that we can do. Because to show mercy, you have to. To make yourself vulnerable. You can't be a tin man. You can't have no heart. See, being merciful isn't just to be tolerant. To be merciful is to be totally involved. So we're not just putting up with things. We're coming alongside to maybe help someone maybe get through it, or at least just help someone know they're not alone in it. The unmerciful looks at a failed marriage or a marriage that is failing and says that, well, this is because of a bad decision made. So-and-so did something they shouldn't have done or they went somewhere they shouldn't have been or, or they had a conversation they shouldn't have had, and that may be true. 
But to be merciful sees a failed marriage. It sees the pain and the baggage that that brings to everyone involved. And then it comes alongside, and here's the catch. To be merciful doesn't allow you to pick sides. You may be more attached, for example, in a wedding to the husband or the wife, but to be merciful, I have to be merciful to both sides. And for us, it may come down to something at work. You may want someone to get stuck in their place or get what they deserve, but if I'm going to be merciful, that I'm going to be merciful to the one that I'm feeling hatred towards, but I'm also going to be merciful to the ones that have my back. It has to play both sides equally. And we do this because we know that we were guilty. We were guilty before God. And no one came to our aid except God who is rich in mercy. And so we show this mercy to people. So to be merciful is to take care of the suffering. It means to get inside the situation, to take on the emotions, the baggage, and the pain. We see how God did this as a God of mercy, through Jesus Christ, took on the skin of men. So instead of seeing the problem, we see the person. We see an individual, no matter what situation we find them in, no matter what, what side we are tempted to take, and no matter if that situation is self-inflicted or has been forced upon them, we see them as every bit as human as we are, and we understand that what we go through and what we experience, we could very well be in their situation. That could be us. And so we look at them going through that situation as if that is us, and how would we want people to respond to us in that situation? Would we want them to shake their heads or point their finger or tell us, you know, if you would have done this, this never would have happened? Or do we simply want them to be a presence that shows the love of God? That's to be merciful. And so to be merciful, it's going to cost deeply, and it's going to cost greatly. It may impact your wallets. It may impact your plans. It may disrupt your vacation. It's going to attack your pride, and it's going to be misunderstood by an unbelieving world. Because when we're offended, our natural response isn't to show mercy to someone or to show love. Our natural response is now, this person has offended me, and so now this person is the enemy. They're not for me. They don't have my best interests in mind. But to be merciful doesn't allow us to do this. To be merciful allows, makes us see the individual or the circumstance not as the enemy, but instead we see that individual as someone who is fully human and is wrestling with sin just like we are. So we can't have the mentality, they're getting what they deserve. This isn't merciful, this isn't loving, this is actually hatred. This is hating an individual and hoping ill will comes towards them. Which is the exact opposite of what God commands us to do. Love God, love people. So to be merciful while someone is suffering is to have an attitude of such compassion toward them that we want to share gladly all that we have with the other why it's not easy. That's why it's tough. That's why Jesus lays this down so we can see, okay, I've got a long way to go to become more like Christ. Because being merciful doesn't just see the suffering. We can look all around the world. Just turn on the news and you see the suffering. 
To be merciful is to take on the sufferer's suffering and to take it on as our own to the point we don't just give of ourselves, we don't just give our possessions, we give until it absolutely hurts, until maybe nothing is less left. So when we're merciful, we may be taken advantage of. But the promise of this beatitude is, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So the point is that we show this sort of mercy to people in their situation because we know the one whom it really matters. And he continues to show his mercy. He lavishes it upon us daily and his forgiveness daily. Finally, to be merciful is to preach the good news lovingly. We share alongside the sufferer. If we respond to the person in need, if we see the pain and the brokenness that sin brings into people's life, then we have to understand as God's people, the only remedy to this situation is the message of Jesus Christ. He is the only thing that can heal these wounds. He is the only thing that can change the attitudes. He's the only thing that can change the actions is when someone falls in love with Jesus Christ and he works on their heart from the inside. So it takes us back to the point we meet people where they are. This is the true evidence of a merciful heart. And this is the one reason I believe the world either rejects the gospel or accepts the gospel. William Barclay says, if we are detached and disinterested in them, they will be detached and disinterested in us. If they see that we care, their hearts will respond in caring. Oswald Chamberlain wrote that a person's character determines how they interpret God's will. He wrote on this topic in dealing with the holiness of God and the purity of God and the mercy of God. So in our context, we know we are merciful by how we respond and react to the world. So here's the thing. I don't know how you respond to the news or those wonderful Facebook posts that go out there. I don't know what you feel in your heart, if it's joy or anger or whatever, but I can tell you how I respond and maybe you can relate. There are times things come on the news and things come across Facebook, people that I consider friends and I think are competent, and I say, you're an idiot. You obviously don't know God and you need Jesus. You should know better than this. Anybody ever have those thoughts? I confess I do. I mean, so. The thing about being merciful and to show mercy is we see the actions of the world, and it may be stupid. It may be one of those things we're thinking, they should know better. This person has a high education level. He is in a high Position, and I'm not talking about anybody in, in particular. I don't know where your mind's going, but you obviously need to show mercy to that person. They should know better. They obviously don't know God or his word. But if I'm going to be merciful, I'm not going to rationalize the actions or the statements of a world that does not know God and is still in sin, and still I'm going to be broken for them and pray that God would bring people in their lives so they can hear the truth and see the life. People, when we shake our heads and we point our fingers and we say they are the dumbest people I know or I can't believe they do that or they obviously don't know God, we're not showing mercy. But what God is trying to reveal to us is they need the message that we have inside of us because that's the only thing that will change them. 
And so to be merciful is to share the love of God, the gospel of God, the good news in a loving way. You cannot be merciful and judge the world at the same time. You can't. You cannot be merciful and watch the world that is broken and think they should know better. To be merciful and to see what's going on in our world and in our country means that we're going to be broken for it and we're going to pray for it. We're going to get on our knees before God and we're going to lift our world up. We're going to get on our knees before God and we're going to lift all politicians up, no matter what party they are lined to. We're going to get on our knees before God and we're going to lift our coworkers up that drive us absolutely insane. We're going to be broken for them and then we're going to engage them with the gospel. Not with an opinion, not with a theory, not with something that's out there you heard that sounded good or tickled your fancy. We're going to engage them with the gospel because only the gospel can change the hearts of men. We're going to be merciful because we understand that if we had not received God's mercy, if we had not come under that found in Jesus Christ alone, here's the thing, we would be doing the exact same thing. You may be thinking, no, I wouldn't. Yes, you would. You'd just give it another title. You'd give it another name. But it's all sin. And we would be doing the exact same thing. So our merciful heart isn't pointing the finger. It isn't shaking our head. But the evidence of our merciful heart is one that we are engaging the world with the message of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, the word of the Lord says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's, he's writing to believers here. He's writing to people like us. We were dead. We were in our sin. That's where we live. That's what the word walk means. You were following the course of this world. You were just kind of going with the flow that the world was doing. You were following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, hear that again, we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here it is, verse 4. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's the message. We were just like this world. We would be doing the same thing as this world, except God in his rich mercy stepped in, changed our hearts, changed our mind. Even though we may still wrestle with that sinful nature, we do know better only because we know God's mercy. And since we know his mercy, we're going to give this world mercy. And we're going to meet them just as God met us. Dan Garland writes, God's mercy is the foundation of mankind's salvation. It's God's unmerited response to human need. In the book of Titus chapter 3, it says, But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
to be merciful, we look out into the world and we understand this is how we acted at one time. And this is how we act sometimes, even though we know Christ, but by God's mercy and grace towards us, we've been saved from the consequences of it. And so the evidence that the people in this world who are living for this world are doing things that we don't agree with is the evidence that we belong somewhere else and to someone else. But instead of condemning them and judging them, we step in with the gospel that can save them. We show them mercy. God, in his rich mercy and great love, made us alive with Christ. It was his grace towards us, saved us, and it's the grace now that we are to show the world. Will we be taken advantage of? What do you think? Yeah. Will we be made fun of? Yep. Will the world not understand? Yes. But if we're merciful, we shall receive mercy from the one it truly matters, God. Be merciful finally. I know I said finally already. but <laughs> It means we're forgiving. It means we're not going to hold a grudge towards someone else. We're not going to take matters into our own hands. We're going to give it to God and allow him to carry our burden. Being merciful releases us. It keeps our, our hearts from becoming hateful and prideful, and arrogant, and self-righteous. Being merciful allows us to come alongside the hurting, realize that we all are hurting in different ways because we're all in need of Jesus every single day. Being merciful allows the kids to color on the walls. <laughs> because we're glad we have kids in church. It allows the youth to run up and down the hallways, even though it may drive some of us nuts but we're glad we have students in church. It allows adults that we may have a high standard or view of to make mistakes because we know that we make mistakes too. And it comes along people who are hurting and walks with them through the hurt. The question is, how merciful are we? Is there someone in your life right now that you want them to be put in their place, but you instead need to show mercy? Give it to God. It'll all work out in the end. This brings us to the final question. Do you know the God of mercy personally? See, we've talked about the good news and the gospel, and what the good news is is that God created you for a relationship with him. That is your sole purpose in this life. It's not to get a job. It's not to get a raise, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, get into a college, get a scholarship, get a new car. Your purpose, my purpose in life, is to be in a relationship with God. That's it. The problem we all have is we all sin. We all fall short of God's holiness, which disconnects us from that relationship. And so we try to be a good person, we try to go to church enough, we try to read our Bible, we maybe put a little money in the offering plate, but the Bible says that we cannot pay the debt of our sin before a holy God. 
We can't fix what's wrong with us. And God knows that about it. And that's why God is a loving God, a merciful God, and a forgiving God, that he stepped out of the heavens in his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life that you and I couldn't. Jesus Christ died on the cross to take our punishment, to take our sin and the wrath of God upon himself. He was placed in a tomb and he rose three days later to show that death has no power anymore. And the Bible says when we believe in our heart that God would love us that much, even though we know we don't deserve it, he would be that merciful to us. And we believe that to be true. The Bible says if we confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we will be saved. We will be forgiven from all of our sins, past, present, and future. They will be separated as far as the east is to the west. And we will become a child of God living in the mercy of God. And so if you're here this morning and you've yet to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've yet to confess him as your Lord and Savior, to confess means to publicly make known. We come this time of invitation and I'm going to invite you to come down. So Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I want to belong to God. I want his grace and his mercy and his love upon me. But maybe you're here and you've already done that, but you know there's someone in your life and you're thinking, man, Pastor Mike, you're a jerk. There's someone in my life i got to show mercy to now. And you know it's not in your strength to do it. Maybe you need to come and kneel before the Father. Maybe your, your husband or wife is with you. Maybe a friend is with you. And just bring them with you and come and kneel before the Father and pray for the strength to do what God is calling you to do. To show mercy. But this is our time of response. Jackson and Bridget are going to come up and lead us in a song. I want to pray over us. And then I'm going to invite you to come. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. Lord, help us to be a people of mercy. To reveal to this world what they're in desperate need of is not some sort of stimulus package. It's not another law or an amendment. But they need the almighty God in their life. So help us to be merciful people so we can preach the message that we have come to learn and love to them. So when we see people in pain and in hurting, give us the reminder to pray for them and to walk alongside them, to be broken along with them. I thank you, Lord, you've given us this place where we can gather with our other brothers and sisters from Christ to just to be reminded we do not walk through this world alone. We have you and we have our eternal family. Lord, if there's someone here this morning that does not know you as your Lord and Savior, as we've talked about your mercy and your grace and your love that you lavished upon them, and they realize that they have yet to accept that or let it be known that they have accepted that. Father, I pray that you would give them the courage to come forward, to grab someone next to them and come forward with them if they need to. Above all else, Lord, we pray that your will and kingdom would be done in this time as we respond to your word, not just to be hearers but doers of it. Forgive me if I got in your way in any way. Take that away from all the hearts here today, if it was not your word. And praise on the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.